just a quick note on, on Galatians as a whole. We're working through, through this book. We started in September. We plan on wrapping up sometime in March uh, while taking some time off at Christmas time to do some other stuff. And we do it at this pace because we believe that every word in here is the word of God. It was all put here for our good. There's a lot to steep in as we work through this slowly. But the disadvantage of working through a book slowly like this is that at this pace, we can miss out on some of the connections between the beginning of the book and the end of the book. And the book of Galatians is actually really well balanced, where, where the main theme in the first few chapters balances well with the main themes at the end. But we don't necessarily catch that balance from week to week since we're not going to be in that end until there's snow on the ground. And, and so in these first few chapters, Paul is aggressively going after one main problem in our hearts. And that's our tendency to think that we work our way to God, our tendency to think that we make our religious obedience the thing that, that makes us okay with God, at least in part, and then our tendency to have all the bad fruit that comes from believing those things, where we can become arrogant because we think we're doing really well as Christians, or we can become dejected and hopeless because we're, we're sure that we've failed. Or we start to form teams in the church because they're the good people over there and the not quite as good people over there. And we live on this exhausting religious treadmill. And so Paul's aiming in these first few chapters to cure that, to cure that with the gospel, which is the message that Jesus died and rose again. And that the only thing that connects us to God is not our religious good works, but it's what he did for us on that cross. That when we turn to him in faith, believing in what he did, that's when we're forgiven. That's when we're justified. That's when we're connected to God. It's not when we do enough good things to get God to approve of us. And this is really important for us to believe. We need to believe this to live really secure and healthy Christian lives. And so the big emphasis in the first four chapters is that our good works don't contribute anything to our right standing with God. Which raises a question, well, what about our works? I mean, don't real Christians do things and not do other things? And the answer to that is yes. I mean, James 2, for example, tells us that faith without works is dead. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So God does see our works. God does care about our works. He even rewards works that are done in faith. And later in Galatians, we'll get to that. Toward chapters 5 and 6, we'll get to the good fruit that we bear as Christians, the, the bad fruits to avoid, how we interact with one another, and then we'll even be sent out at the end of Galatians with an encouragement to never get discouraged in doing good. So that balance is coming. Doing does matter, and, and feel free to read ahead. Don't worry about any spoilers. In, in fact, as we go through Galatians, it might be a good practice to just read this book once a week so that you connect all the connections between what we're reading now and what we'll be reading then. But it can feel from week to week just a little bit unbalanced. And, and these first four chapters are all about the roots of our faith and making sure that we never confuse the roots and the fruits and making sure that we never think for a moment that God accepts us because of our good works whether in whole or in part. It's about making sure that we know that we're justified or forgiven or we become Christians, not by the things that we do, but by the things that have been done for us as Jesus went to the cross for us. And so these chapters are all about beating that message of the gospel into our heads because we're so quick to forget it and to live like it's not true. We're really quick to move away from grace as the primary lens through which we view the Christian life and instead drift toward trying and failing to get to God by our effort. 
We drift toward getting on that same old religious treadmill and that same old exhaustion that we've maybe experienced before, and Paul wants to make sure that that doesn't happen. He wants to make sure that we get this right, because if there's any foundation for our faith other than Jesus Christ himself, that'll be a fragile foundation, and the life that's built on it will be fragile as well. But if we rest in Christ, if we rest in Christ completely in his power to save, then we can go out and do all kinds of good. We can reflect the love of Christ to those around us, not in some insecure religious attempt to earn heaven, but out of the overflow of the free grace that we've already received in Christ. And I think we can get concerned sometimes that if we don't emphasize our works enough, that we won't do them, and that those works get neglected. And, and often churches will, will drift toward a de-emphasis on Jesus and on his cross and on doctrine in the hopes of freeing up more time and more resources to do good and to serve, which is all well-meaning. But when we do that, what ends up happening is that the root dries up and then eventually the fruit dries up too. And study after study show that it's people who believe in Christ and his gospel that end up being more charitable, they end up volunteering more, they care more for unwed mothers, they mentor more youth, they adopt more. All kinds of good works flow from those who have a rigorous view of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And so we want to be hyper aware of what Jesus has done for us because that changes us. It changes us so that we can't help but do things as a result. But if we fixate on us and our doing, it doesn't last long. We don't keep it up and we grow weary. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spent an epic chapter in, that, uh, in chapter 15 laying out what Jesus has done, what the gospel is, what it means that he rose from the dead. And he ends that whole thing by saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the thing that energizes our works and allows us to overcome the immense frustration that always comes with that long-term resolution to do good is the knowledge of Jesus and his grace toward us and the hope of the resurrection that we're headed for. So we need more gospel, we need more grace, not less if we wanna produce more works. I think sometimes we can have a romanticized view of doing good, that if we set out to do good for our world, that the wind will always be in our sails, we'll always feel like this is easy, this is smooth, it's not hard at all, but then we go out and start doing it and we're getting knocked down left and right, we're being opposed left and right, and it's super easy to quit. And so we need the gospel hope. We need the hope that says don't grow weary in doing good because God will make sure that you reap. We need the hope that says, just like Jesus rose from the dead, you're going to rise from the dead too. And all of your works that seem to go nowhere, that only seem to be frustrating, somehow in the resurrection, those will come back to you too. So for us to persevere and keep going at doing work, serving the Lord, serving our community, we need to believe in grace. And so in this section, Paul is driving that message into our thick skulls. And this original audience, they were made up of, of really good religious people. They were Jewish adherents. They would have heard this message that we're forgiven by grace through faith and not by our works. And they would have thought, oh, you know, we're, we're like good religious people. We've worked hard to be good. We've observed this code of circumcision for 2,000 years. Our people have done that. That all has to count for something. They would have seen themselves as descendants of Abraham who were approved by God because they had that right that was first given to Abraham, that right of circumcision. It was the mark on their body that they belonged to God. And so Paul would have come and said, you just need to turn and believe in Jesus and that's how you become saved. And they would have thought, if we become children of God by faith, then what about our whole history? 
What about the way God saved Abraham? This message that Paul was preaching seemed to diminish their history. It seemed to ignore what they thought their Bible said. It seemed to fly in the face of what seemed to be practiced by the greatest heroes that they had because didn't God use all those great heroes because they worked, because they deserved it? And so Paul in this section says, I'm actually not at all dismissing the story of Abraham. In fact, he's a good example of the very thing that I'm getting at here. And so in Galatians 3, 6, he says, this is all just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul here quotes from the book of Genesis, where right in the story of Abraham, it says that he believed God. And as a result, he had righteousness credited to his account. So he says, yeah, you guys are right to ask about Abraham. And I'm telling you that even Abraham got to God, not by his works, not by his circumcision, but by his faith. And this would have been a big deal because Abraham was considered to be like the best of the Jews. He was the prototypical Jew, the heroic and ultimate Jewish patriarch. All of the Jews descended from him because Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. If you're not familiar with that song, it's the Christian hokey pokey. But, it's, uh... <laughs> but, but for the Jews, Abraham was, he was the goat. He, he was the Josh Allen of the patriarchs, you know, leaping over Canaanites. And he was the guy that was, was put on a pedestal. He was the guy who's exalted. Isaiah 51.1 says that he's the stone from which all of Israel was cut. And he was generally considered to be a really good guy morally. So if anybody's works could get him to God, definitely be Abraham. And the Jews even exaggerated his goodness in their folklore. They had a book that wasn't in the Bible called the Book of Jubilees that had a verse that said, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So while the actual Bible makes clear that Abraham did sin, the common exaggerated folklore held him in such high regard that they treated him like he always perfectly obeyed God, like he didn't need to repent even, like he always kept the law. So Paul comes at it, and he doesn't exaggerate about Abraham like that, but he doesn't deny that he's a great guy. He's basically saying here that even if one of the greatest guys in our history only came to God because God credited him his righteousness by faith and not by the works that he did, then then if that's how he got to God, then certainly we couldn't work our way to God either. Even the most arrogant person among them wouldn't have said, I'm better than Abraham. And if Abraham needed God's forgiveness and grace, if Abraham couldn't get to God by his works, then certainly I couldn't. So everybody needs grace. The best among us does not qualify to get to God because they've been good enough or because they've done enough enough religious stuff. Abraham's only hope was faith in God's mercy, not his works. We all need the grace of God. Even our heroes need it which by the way, is the right way for us to just view everybody. We're kind of in this cultural moment right now where we don't know what to do with heroes because every hero ends up having faults and flaws and sins and a past. And so we're on this cycle where we idolize people and we do this with people in our history. We do this with people in our pop culture. We idolize them, we put them on pedestals and then we learn about a fault. And then when we learn about that, we don't know what to do. So, so we demonize and we destroy them. We cancel them, they're no good at all, we drop them completely. Because what happens is if we take God off the throne of our lives, we'll always look for someone or something else to take his place. 
And if we're looking for a God in our heroes, we'll be in this endless cycle of always idolizing, thinking that they're better than they actually are, and then demonizing, canceling, and destroying them. We'll end up being really afraid to commend the good that we see in anybody because we know that we'll eventually find something bad. We'll be afraid to really be thankful for anybody because we know rightly that we'll find some sin. I mean, we know that the best way to lose a hero is to get close to him. Because when you get close to him, that's where you see the flaws. That's where you're tempted to say, you failed me, I'm done with you, and to cancel him. We have this way of thinking, and it could actually turn our lives into to where they resemble C.S. Lewis's depiction of hell in The Great Divorce, where, where everybody's consumed with himself, everybody only trusts himself or herself, everybody just keeps moving farther and farther away from each other because nobody can stand anybody. And if we continue in this idolization and demonization cycle, that's all we can do. But scripture offers us a better way. It offers us the gospel way that says that, yeah, it's true, that our heroes are sinners. And our friends are sinners. Those we love and admire the most are sinners and, and probably worse than we know. But the truth is, we also know that I'm worse than you know too. And I'm acceptable to God, not because of my perfections, not because I've put my faith, not because I've put my faith in myself, but because I've put my faith in Christ who gave his life to die for my sins on the cross, who offered me grace, who offered me mercy. But anybody that we trust, anyone we admire, anyone that we look to as a hero at some point is going to require the mercy and the forgiveness of God and our mercy and forgiveness too. But we can still admire fallen people because that's the only kind of people there are. And there's enough grace in Christ for us to forgive and to commend the good without glossing over the failures. We don't have to pretend that our heroes in history or in our culture don't have flaws. That'd be a denial of what we believe about the universal need for grace. And we also don't have to distance ourselves from everybody in whom we discover flaws because that'd be a denial of grace too. And it would be arrogant to claim that I don't have any of those flaws that might make people want to move away from me. The truth is we all know that we need grace and forgiveness too. And if we don't acknowledge that, we'll always be trying to hide, we'll always be trying to avoid, we'll always be trying to sweep our flaws under the carpet and to live in fear because eventually people will find out. It's best to keep our distance so that we can keep those people in awe of ourselves. But then we live in this really uneasy place where we're feeling like it's only our works that justify us and eventually someone's gonna find out. But the gospel's the answer to that. So Paul says, you put Abraham on a pedestal, and rightly so, great guy. But he wasn't a sinless guy. He was justified, he was made right with God, not by his works, but by faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And if even righteous Abraham needed God's mercy, and if even righteous Abraham could only be justified by faith, then certainly that's how we're made righteous too. And Paul here quotes right from their Bible. He's saying, I'm not like making up some story. I'm not forcing this idea of grace on your Bible story. He quotes from Genesis 15, 6, where even the Old Testament that they had taught that Abraham didn't get to God by his own righteousness, but he had the righteousness of God credited to his account when he believed. 
Now, when the New Testament quotes a verse in the Old Testament, it's calling our attention not just to that verse, but also to all the context of that verse, to the whole story that that verse is in. And so if you could briefly, let's turn to Genesis 12. Um, when, when we see the Old Testament quoted in the New, treat those quotes like hyperlinks, where, where God wants us to kind of click on that and go to that and look at that and read all the surrounding passage around there. Because in this story of Abraham, we have a model of what it is to come to God by faith and to live by faith in our day. We see in Abraham not a guy who's obsessed with his own religious righteousness, but a guy who knew and walked with God by faith. And so the story of Abraham begins in Genesis 12. This is about 4,000 years ago. Um, his name at that time is Abram. He's living in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. Joshua 24 verse 2 says that he and his family worshipped false gods. In Ur, the people there worship the moon, so it's likely that Abram is a moon-worshipping pagan. He's in a big coastal city. He's really just an ordinary guy in a big town, nothing all that spectacular about him. But then God in his sovereignty decides that he's going to use this guy to begin the process of taking back his creation from the curse of sin, the process of redeeming a unique people for himself, and then filling the whole world with his glory. So that is a big responsibility, and he couldn't choose a more ordinary guy to do all this with. And this is just like God. He, he's going to carry out this grand plan for history and salvation, and he chooses this totally insignificant schmo to do the whole thing. For God to say, I'm going to choose Abraham, would be like God saying, I'm going to change the entire world, and I'm going to use Phil in Indianapolis, who's working in a cubicle. We'd all go... Why Phil? Like, like, why him? But God again and again does things so that the excellency of the power can be shown to be of God and not from us. God consistently takes jars of clay to fill them with his glory. And so already in Abram, we see that he didn't earn his place with God. God was just gracious to him. And so Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chooses Abram to bless the whole world. But then you see right away that he's far from a perfect guy. You read on in Genesis 12, he goes to Egypt and there he tells his wife to lie and say that she's his sister so the men won't kill him and take her. He has her live with Pharaoh as part of his harem so that, that he can be kept safe. He pulls a stunt like that twice. So Abram is like the opposite of chivalry. He's the opposite of the kind of guy we would want our sons to become at this point. So it's, it's not his works that are making him righteous. But like anyone, he's a mixed bag. You go on in chapter 14 and you see courage and virtue. He kind of becomes like Liam Neeson in Taken and he goes and he rescues his nephew Lot and who had been kidnapped and so he's a heroic guy at that point. But here's this heroic guy with feet of clay who is a mixed bag. And then in Genesis 15, Abraham's about 85 years old and this happens. Verse one, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God tells Abraham, I'm going to keep my promise to make a great nation come out of you. And it's not going to be this other guy who gets your inheritance. It's going to be your own son, your son who's not even born yet, which seems unlikely when you're 85, but God said it. So Abraham believed God. And at the moment that he believes, God's righteousness is credited to his account. He doesn't have his own righteousness. He's been a mixed bag at best. But when he believes, he's credited with this alien righteousness, a righteousness from outside himself. And it's when he believes that his sins are forgiven. That's when he becomes a righteous man. So it wasn't that Abram was sinless. It wasn't that he was a high achiever. It wasn't that God looked at him and he said, where is the one who measures up? There, it's Abraham. God came to him by grace and gave him his righteousness through the conduit of his faith. And so at that moment, God's virtue is credited to his account. He didn't earn it. God told him, I'm going to use you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. He looked up at the sky and he said, I believe you, Lord. I trust you. And at that moment of faith, he's made righteous before he does any works and also 14 years before he's ever circumcised. And so Paul's writing to these Galatian Christians who are saying, no, you have to be circumcised to be a real Christian, to be a complete Christian. I mean, look at Abraham. He was given the covenant of circumcision because he was actually given righteousness by faith 14 years before he was ever circumcised. So you're right, guys, to take Abraham as the example of how to come to God. But if you read his story, he came to God by faith long before he did any works. And Paul's saying, if that's the way the hero of our faith was saved, by grace through faith, that's the way we'll be saved. If it was that way for him, if works couldn't get him in the door with God, then it's the same way for us. Galatians 3, 7, he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If Abraham wasn't made righteous by circumcision, then his descendants, the ones God promised to bless the world with, are those who, like Abraham, believe. To be a child of Abraham, to be one of those many sons, many daughters of Abraham, you don't need to be a physical descendant, but a spiritual descendant. And that was the plan all along. That all the nations would be blessed through Abraham, not just the Jews. And so Galatians 3.8, he says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So the way that all the nations would be blessed would be just like Abraham was blessed, by believing God's promise and having righteousness credited to them. Abraham was blessed and received that promise before he even technically became Jewish through circumcision. And those who believe today are just following that same way that he followed toward that blessing of redemption, faith in God, and that's what gets you in the door. So verse 9, he says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This blessing of redemption has always come through faith, not works. And yeah, Abraham is, is the prototype, sure, just like they thought he was. He's just like us, regular guy, sinful works, mixed bag morally, chosen by God, 
and at the moment that he believes, he's forgiven. That's how God's always saved people. And like Abraham, we're, we never move on to something more or a life of, of, there is nothing more than a life of faith and dependence on God. Our, our faith looks like his faith. And so the encouragement from this passage is to not trust ourselves to get ourselves to God. Because even Abraham didn't do that. And the encouragement is to always realize that it's only by grace through faith that we're saved. And then to follow Abraham's pattern of faith. The last passage today, if you want to turn over to Romans chapter 4. Romans is a book that kind of unpacks things more than Galatians does. Romans is like the jumbo version of Galatians, the, the extended dance version of Galatians. And, and it unpacks a little bit what that faith was like that, that Abraham had. And remember, this is the pattern for our faith. Uh, Romans 4 verse 18, when it's describing the faith of Abraham, it says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. So God first made this promise to Abraham when he was 85. It still hadn't materialized when he was 100 and Sarah was 99. And so you have this century-old couple being told that they're going to have their own baby. Sarah is well past childbearing years. Abram is obviously no spring chicken. But he believed against hope, it says. The situation itself had no hope to find in it. It was completely hopeless for Abram and Sarah to have a child, humanly speaking, there was a real situation that basically says this never happens, and, and Abram knew it. It says that he considered his own body. He knew the reality of the situation. He didn't deny that the situation was grim. But there was another reality. Another reality that was even more solid, even more true. He knew that God raises the dead and that God had made a promise. God said he would do it, and he has the power to do it, so therefore it will be done. Not only does God raise the dead, but God calls into existence things that don't exist. You remember what God had Abraham do when he made this promise to him? He said, look up at the stars. So he's looking up at the stars that God called into existence with a word. And God says, I'm going to give you descendants that are as numerous as those stars. And to look up and think, well, if God can make those stars with a word, then certainly he can make his word powerful in my life. Certainly he can give me the descendants that he's promised. So when God makes a promise, we know that he has the power to fulfill it. We know he's trustworthy. So Abraham knows his circumstances are grim. He knows that God has just promised him the impossible. But he trusts God. And this is the model of faith for us. We have a clear promise from God made in Scripture. Not just what we want to be true. God has to actually really make the promise. But, but when we have a promise from God, we can anchor our hearts to that promise even when circumstances seem to tell us that that could never be the case. And we need this as we go through our lives. I mean, think of all the times that we're just not sure if God is going to provide for us. Well, he's promised that he will. Yeah, but circumstances, I mean, the industry is gone. My job went away. Well, we go out in faith like Abraham, trusting the promise of God. 
God's also promised to be with us. And we'll say, yeah, but I have these days where he doesn't feel like he's with me. He doesn't seem near. It seems like he's forsaken me. But faith says that God can be trusted over and against my feelings. See, Abraham, as the model of faith, focused his faith on God, not on himself. And I think the mistake we make when we say, I want to be a person of faith, I want to have faith, I want to believe, is we focus very inwardly. And we keep asking ourselves, how am I doing with my faith? Do I believe enough? Do I need to believe a little bit harder than I'm believing? Is, is my belief strong enough? But the object of Abraham's faith was not himself. It was the God who raises the dead and who calls things that don't exist into existence. He focused on him. And so, so in this impossible situation, Abraham glorified God by being convinced that God was able to do what he promised he would do, and he trusted in him. He looked to him and his nature and his promises, and, and he didn't think about himself. He didn't think about his circumstances ultimately. Ultimately, he thought about God and what he is and who he is and what he said he would do, and he thought about God as trustworthy. This is the example of faith for us. So it's a model faith for us, both in our coming to Christ and in our daily living. That we look to God and we trust in him, and that's what faith is. And the content of Abraham's faith is similar to ours. Romans says that Abraham believed that God raises the dead. But we know, in fact, that God did raise the dead. God raised Jesus from the grave, and, and no, that doesn't happen. No, there's, there's all kinds of evidence that people don't raise from the dead. That doesn't happen. But the contrary evidence is the word of God. And every word of God is sure. We have the promise from God that Jesus did rise from the grave and that he will forgive all those who come to him by faith. Just as Abraham believed in the God who raises the dead, so do we. We believe in a God who's trustworthy, who's powerful, who spoke the world into existence, who, who spoke and acted, who fulfills all of his promises. To walk by faith, we look to God who speaks into nothing and outcomes a universe. We believe in a God who speaks into a grave and outcomes life. And the way that we build our faith is not mainly by looking at ourselves and asking, how am I doing? but by looking to God and his nature and his faithfulness to his promises. And to grow in our confidence in our salvation, to grow in our faith, we don't need more self-focus. We need to beat back the weed of self-focus that keeps growing in our hearts. Faith is grown when we take our eyes off of ourselves and we put them on the sure thing that the cross and the resurrection are for us. We, we grow our faith by looking to Jesus, not to ourselves. We look to his perfect life, not to ours. We look to his steadiness, not ours. We're like shifting sand, but he's always like the solid rock. And when we ask, like Abraham, how do I know you'll keep your promise to us? The answer for us is not only that God has power to raise the dead, but that he did raise the dead. And that we have an even more sure thing than Abraham, and Abraham was fully convinced. And for us, God didn't just revive a woman who the scripture says was as good as dead so that she could give birth. He revived his son who was dead. And the grave gave birth to new life. So we don't need to ask, where in my heart can I find faith? We look to him who's worthy of our faith and worthy of our trust. We look to the trustworthy one. 
The answer isn't in us. It's outside of us. It isn't in our hearts. It isn't in our emotions. It isn't in our circumstances. It's in Christ. And we live by faith by laying hold of Christ. We're made right with God like Abraham was by faith in a God who calls nothing into something. And in a moment, the, the Christians among us are, who have confessed our sins and who have trusted in Jesus will be taking the Lord's Supper as an outward demonstration of that faith. By taking the supper, we're saying that we believe that God has provided what we need. That our sin kept us away from him, we deserved hell as a result, but God's word says that he sent his son and that the death of Jesus was sufficient to pay the price for all of our sin. And when we as Christians take this bread, we're saying, not that I've earned that, not that I'm good enough on my own, not that I can come to God on my own, but I needed that, and that is enough. And in taking this cup, we're saying that, yeah, my sins are enough that my blood should have been spilled, but I've trusted fully in Christ. And I trust because God says it, that, that his blood was spilled, and therefore I can be forgiven. So we're called as Christians to take this supper as just a testimony to the faith in Jesus that we have. Now, Scripture warns us not to take this in an unworthy manner. And that would be in a manner that doesn't believe what this supper says. Which means that if we haven't confessed our sins, if we haven't confessed our need for Jesus, then we shouldn't take this supper. Also, if we believe that Jesus could never accept me because I need to do more first, then we're not really believing the gospel, so we shouldn't take the supper. But if together we're saying, I've sinned, but God is good and merciful. And I've confessed my sins, and I believe the promise of the gospel, that what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross was enough, then together we take this supper as an act of faith. Together we're saying, I need Jesus, but that Jesus is enough. I need redemption, but he provided redemption on that cross. I need forgiveness, and he forgave me with his torn blood, or with his spilled blood and his torn body.